the passion of the medical loss ratio. Why hath payers forsaken mental health treatments that work? How broken incentives created a system of endless torture for the most vulnerable, part one of two, by Owen Muir. The Christian tradition talks about the concept of original sin, which becomes the basis for why our Western tradition's leading man, Jesus, had to die in such a dramatic way for the story to have real forward momentum. As scholars of the biblical story of Jesus, some have chosen to focus on the suffering endured in the peri-crucifixion period. The psychological pain, how much it would suck to know one was forsaken by God when he's your dad, was understood to be the bad part. Others focused on a more corporeal snuff-porn take on his crucifixion, both groups agree this experience, the passion, sucked. This is Jesus in some version of the summer of 33 AD's Saw prequel, Dying for Our Sins. And lo, our sins were thusly forgiven. Not ones to waste a safe harbor loophole, healthcare regulators and politicians have replicated this thou art forsaken experience with a growth trajectory, the envy of every Y Combinator grad. Crucifixion is a grim business. It reminded the enemies of Rome of the price of disobedience. Even the involuntary schlepping of the horizontal beam of a cross on one's way to one's execution was the co-insurance of its day. The almost crucified were expected to bear the burden and spare the centurions. But there is an important point about crucifixion, which makes it a palatable option when compared to the suffering of the patient journey in psychiatric illness. The crucified know the suffering will end. It'll be a couple of days, and then you get to not have to feel that way anymore, predictably. Not that death is a good outcome for the crucified, but you generally had a good sense of where things were going and the intent of the parties involved. As Shakespeare notes in Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 2, If I say sooth, I must report, they were as cannons overcharged with double cracks, so they doubly redoubled their strokes upon the foe, except they meant to bathe in reeking wounds or memorialize another Golgotha. I cannot tell, but I am faint, my gnashes cry for help. This is, of course, an allusion in the beginning of the play to the place, Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified. Even in one of the bloodier Shakespearean tragedies, this is not understood as a scene to recreate. Ignoring the lessons of history as as reliable as playwrights cautioning against it, however, in our modern healthcare system, we have done so and added indignity of getting snail-mailed a bizarre parody of a bill called an explanation of benefits at the end, to wit... Explanation of Crucifixion, EOC. The following is not a bill. Crucifix Procedural Terminology, or CPT Code, C666. Diagnostic Code, M33.2, Messianic Personality Disorder. Place of Service, Golgotha. Build Amount, 100 Silver. Allowed Amount, 50 Silver. 20% Coinsurance, 10 Silver. Your Plan Rendered, 40 silver. You may still render unto Caesar 50 silver. And you thought the passion was bad. Imagine going through hell and back, literally, and this is in your papyrus inbox. It is at this point that I would 
also like to get credit for being able to quote Macbeth in two separate mental health think pieces. To suffer in silence, or worse, loudly but unheard, is tragic. To be denied care that might be helpful when in the pit of despair, this is the passion of the psychiatrically suffering. I'm presenting the hypothesis that people are forsaken because it makes a complex balance sheet work. It is a trespass against us. The experience of care for the undertreated depression or misdiagnosed schizophrenia is horrifying. The fee-for-service insurance system is a symptom of an unoriginal sin. In this case, it's a cynical implementation of an attempt to limit the optics of profits. This is done with centurion stoic disregard for unintended consequences. The business model profits on suffering. This would predict more suffering. And it does. And we do. Now, if you were thinking, Dr. Muir, this is a little messianic, with this glib comparison of psychiatric care and the crucifixion of the Lord Christ, consider. The crucified were often stabbed or had their limbs broken to hasten their painful death as a service. That mercy, harsh though it may have been, is only a fantasy for those suffering under the current standards of care. 45,000 people kill themselves every year in the U.S. because they would, in a dark enough moment, rather die than live as their illness dictates. In Rome, the passing throngs mercy-killed people left to die by asphyxiation. Yep. It is with a grim sense of irony, I will note. This is still a common way for vulnerable people, often the mentally ill, to die at the hands of the state. In the U.S., instead of help, we trust those in despair to just kill themselves already. For scale, the number of completed suicides annually is more every single year than we've ever had in a research study on suicide or depression. Jesus had to wonder why he was forsaken. Those suffering now get that answered for them every time they seek care. They are not a good fit for the practice. Our cruel Caesar? I'm speaking, of course, of the medical loss ratio for private health insurance. Even that name probably tells regular folks nothing about what I'm talking about, and that's kind of the point. It's so boring, you might have already had a false positive on a sleep latency test just listening to those words. Try it. Medical loss ratio. Medical loss... (laughs) It's like counting sheep. And, And yet, I will argue, the incentives created by this system lead to the prolonged and predictable suffering of millions. Decades of despair, overdose, and death is its due. The MLR ensures, get it? God. Suffering on a scale that would make Rome's Professional Crucifiers Association blush. To make this less boring, I'm going to use a metaphor. To avoid being cool, I'm going to use a really dad one. It also lightens the article up quite a bit, which after opening with Mel Gibson's torture porn obsession, is a welcome palate-cleansing sorbet, or in this case, ice cream. The passion, fruit scoop, of the ice cream serving size. I have twin six-year-olds. If there was a regulation around how much ice cream they could consume, and it followed the same math as the MLR, this would be a Sunday conversation with my kiddos. Trent, Quinn, come here. 
it's time to have some ice cream. All of the adults have had a conversation, and we've decided it would be inappropriate for you to have the appearance of too much ice cream. So Daddy has a rule, Quinn put that spoon down, about the amount of ice cream you can have. You can't stop us from eating as much ice cream as we want, Trent lobbying effectively. You are correct, young man. Practically speaking, I can neither limit the amount of ice cream you're going to want, nor can I keep you away from eating as much ice cream as you're going to. I mean, I could. (laughs) That would be good parenting. I could make adult rules for the total amount of ice cream or create other regulatory standards, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to hear you complain or, in grown-up language, lobby. What I can do is cynically control for other people thinking I'm a terrible father, so I'm going to limit the amount both of you could be eating two, only 20% of the ice cream in your bowl. But how much total ice cream can we have that fractional amount of? Quinn asks with, frankly, disturbingly mature verbiage. So that's the thing. You can ask for any total amount of ice cream you'd like. In fact, you can ask for incrementally more ice cream every time. Every bowl can have as much ice cream as you can spoon out, but you can only complete 20% of any given amount. Is there any limit on the total number of bowls? asked Trent, with growing suspicion. After all, we had the things that are too good to be true talk just last week. There will not be any limit on the number of bowls. This is America, I respond patriotically. My children work out that asking for more ice cream is the correct answer to allow maximal gorging on 20% of that amount. Keep in mind how permissive I am. Now, when you are choosing old folks' homes one day... I mutter. That would be undue influence, says Trent, who clearly has been learning to read at a pace that I have not understood until just now. I trust this is likely both the first and, God willing, last time that twin six-year-olds were used to explain the medical loss ratio's incentives. In their childish innocence, they highlight the fundamental problem. If you can only ever make a 20% profit margin, you will still want to increase profits. You need to increase both premium cost and what you spend on care. Or as Trent later put it, Daddy, my tummy really hurts. Can I have some more? If I can have some of your Pepto-Bismol, Daddy, I can accomplish a little bit more ice cream eating. Kids, at least those who are being scripted by their physician parents with a healthcare economics axe to grind, say the darndest things. Let's pray pretend. Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Aetna, that's Buka for short, Anthem, Magellan, Oscar, Elevance, Evernorth, Optimus Prime, and other carrier names following that pattern will pretend to want to save money all day long. The fiction of controlling costs never gets old. It's how the justifying of random denial story is told. There may be some segment of the market where savings make sense. But overall, any contention that actually reducing costs is what's going to happen is fictional at best and fraudulent at worst. Prior authorization? It exists to increase total costs through kicking cans down the road till people are sicker. Sick enough to need the really expensive care. The worst shareholder meeting ever imagined. Buka edition. Dear shareholders, amazing news. We cut costs by 7%. Please enjoy our 20% profit margin of 7% less spending. Keep in mind 
that a 1% drop in the share price of United Healthcare, for example, erases on the order of $4.5 billion from shareholder accounts. This is more than the market capitalization of any two startup unicorns below number 15 on the top 100 list combined. More spending in healthcare is simple. More sickness has to be treated with more care expensively. This is the familiar trend upwards. Now, before we have to dive down some awful rabbit hole of how different parts of the United Caremark North Borg interact with each other, I'm going to take it as a premise that even if you don't believe my argument, please accept the premise that anything that increases cost is good, and as promised, this is going to be bangers only. So imagine a mental health system that would only make costs go up over time. Basic principles would include everything should require prior authorization. More incoherent roadblocks are better. Two, the more effective the treatment, the less accessible it must be. Three, long wait times are a feature, not a bug. Four, Financial incentives should drive great doctors away from innovation and insurance panel participation. Five, acquisition of endless non-innovation in startups keeps founders from disruption. Six, relentless focus on low acuity. Seven, diagnostic clarity is to be avoided, both in practice and in the public discourse. Eight, they can always hurt you more. 9. Don't talk about Fight Club. 10. Have the prior two rules be borrowed. See what I mean? Non-innovation. Moving the paradox forward to profits. Now, there are constraints on the above system. One could not simply pay for everything that everyone asked for because it would increase the cost of doing business so quickly that they would have unpredictable and massive losses. You need to have an infrastructure of dynamic approval and denial of claims in order to perfectly hit the 20% profit margin that you are allowed. Sometimes you need to deny more claims, and sometimes you need to deny less, or you would become too profitable and by law, they have to return billions. At the beginning of COVID, this nightmare scenario almost occurred. The very expensive care that is most of elective healthcare in America got shut off overnight. And in the middle of a pandemic, major insurance companies like United Healthcare ran the risk of having so much more money come in as premiums than, that they would have to pay it all back. Citing a remarkable exploration of their structure of Optum and United Healthcare, quote, hospital finance colleagues reported an immediate and substantial drop in medical claims denial from United and other carriers in the summer and fall of 2020. United's quarterly profits dutifully and steeply declined in the subsequent two quarters because its medical expenses sharply rebounded. The rise in United's medical expenses helped the firm avoid premium rebates to patients required by provisions of the Obamacare legislation passed in 2010. The firm did voluntarily rebate about $1.5 billion to many of its customers in June 2020. This is where the ability to dynamically deny claims or increase the cost for the company by essentially becoming more permissive on what they let through the gate came into play. The IT infrastructure was able to dynamically adjust so that it paid out many more claims than it might have otherwise. 
And now, all of a sudden, the cost of doing business went up so much that all these extra revenues from COVID premiums unspent became strategically spent on the various business lines they also owned. No real money, less than one month's profits, had to be returned to the consumer. And shareholders got the returns they were expecting. Costs have to go up every year. And because there are multiple companies in the space, they essentially have to go up somewhat uniformly across all of the companies. That way, premiums go up for everybody some semi-palatable amount every year. You can theoretically comparison shop between one plan and another, but it's a little bit like the best colleges and universities list. It can tilt backwards and forwards between Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, but no one has to worry that UMass will knock them out of the running for the top three spots. The breaking of the fellowship, the end of part one. So this has been part one of my argument. I do not believe there's a sinister plot afoot. I believe there is a much more unsettling and sinister reality, which is that the incentive that is driving the balance sheets of our major payers forces them inevitably in a direction, whether anyone knows it or not, that leads to higher costs, more sickness, more dysfunctional systems, and higher premiums. Rinse, repeat, every year, without end, until we are broke and all dead. Thank you for reading all the way up to the end of part one of my thrilling series of what I imagine will be two parts, The Passion of the Medical Loss Ratio. In the next installment of my piece, I will review the impact on the mental health system specifically and highlight instances where I suspect most parsimonious explanations for why things aren't any good is the above rationale. We will stress test the assumptions, and we will look at fascinating or horrible edge cases. So consider this part the Old Testament, and the next will be the New. I'm hoping I can pull it off in just the Old Testament, New Testament substack format. Otherwise, I will get in some real trouble making this trilogy. Heaven forbid. O. Scott Muir, M.D.